ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Thursday the 7th of December. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Today, the battle against grass in Central Australia, the highly flammable invasive species, is a big worry during the bushfire season. And what the arrest of a US conspiracy theorist tells us about a tragic shooting in rural Queensland. They don't believe in police authority, they don't believe in the government, they believe in ultimate freedom. This is really where we take it to the extremes where they refuse to uphold basic laws and ultimately can become violent towards the authorities. First today, a major overhaul of the National Disability Insurance Scheme is expected after a wide-ranging review and a long list of recommendations were finally made public today. The review identifies several key problems. It calls for more support for children with developmental delays and changes to how people are judged to be eligible for the NDIS. You'll hear shortly from disability advocate Elle Gibbs, But first, our reporter Selena Edmonds has been going through the report and she joined me a short time ago. Sally, the NDIS review went for 12 months and they received almost 4,000 submissions. Now, the review has produced a 329-page report and it's fair to say this is highly anticipated because in all of its consultations with the community during that 12 months the review panel emphasised that things were going to change. So there has been a lot of concern about what those changes might be and so this has been highly anticipated, the release of this report today. Now, the report notes that the gap between those inside and outside of the NDIS is unfair and it says that they've observed a disability support system which they say is out of balance. And so in doing that, they've made 26 recommendations and... In amongst that, there's 139 what they call supporting actions. So it's important to note at this point that there's just over 630,000 Australians on the NDIS, but there are 4.4 million Australians who live with disability. And this report actually relates to the 4.4 million Australians. It's not just about those who are on the NDIS. So one of the recommendations, the first one, is about creating more services inside and outside of the NDIS. And so outside of the scheme, we're talking about people who have not been able to access some services, and that's been a common complaint, that if you're not on the scheme, you don't get the support. So this review is trying to correct that imbalance. Now, Uh, hand-in-hand with more supports for people with disability, whether you're in or out of the scheme, access to the scheme is going to change. So currently there's access lists of who can enter the scheme based on medical diagnosis of disabilities, and that's going to change to being about functional impairment and needs. And so on this recommendation, Australians with disability will no longer have automatic access to the NDIS based on a specified medical diagnosis, but they'll have to prove that they have a significant functional impairment. And it says that the access lists, the 
this report says that they've led to inequity where some participants were automatically eligible while others were not. Now, the review also goes as far as saying the government needs to take steps to fix serious workforce shortages, such as trialling ways to attract and retain workers. And other key recommendations include a stipulation that all providers should be enrolled or registered, a new approach to psychosocial disability and mental health, and a revamped pricing framework as well. Selena, what has the government had to say about this review? We know that the full government response to this review is not going to come until next year. And they've said that, you know, the report itself says that these recommendations must be considered and implemented as a package over a five-year transition period. I think it's really important to note for participants because they've been concerned, because there has been fear out there in the sector, nothing is going to change overnight. These are recommendations and the government has already said that it's going to be working with people with disability to further discuss the changes and reforms that have been proposed. Now, the NDIS Minister, Bill Shorten, says the objectives of the review were to restore trust, ensure sustainability and give participants a better experience and more control by making the NDIS more about people and less about bureaucracy. Selena, what's been some of the reaction from the disability community? Tell us about that. There's a lot to process here. Like, uh, and this is, of course, the second big report we've had this year. We've exactly. had the report of the Dis Disability Royal Commission and then now we've got this report. There is a lot, again, to process in this report. So far, the reaction from advocates and the disability sector has been positive and they do believe that the review panel has listened to them. So it's not going to suit everyone, is the message, but there is a feeling that this will make the scheme fairer. And Nicole Lee, the president of People with Disability Australia, says this investment in foundational supports benefits for everybody in the community. So that recommendation one, foundational supports for people inside and outside of the NDIS, she's highlighted that as benefiting the entire community. So I think it's fair to say that advocates really see that the government has an unprecedented opportunity. Two big reports this year recommending sweeping changes for the lives of people with disability and for the lives of the NDIS participants and those who are not in the scheme. And they are saying this is an opportunity for the government to act. That's ABC reporter Selena Edmonds there. So is the review of the NDIS a step forward for people living with disabilities? Elle Gibbs is Director of Policy and Advocacy at the Disability Advocacy Network Australia. The review really tackles one of the things that's been uh, a huge problem with the NDIS, which it isn't, it hasn't been fair both for people inside the scheme, but particularly for people outside the scheme. So I think that commitment to a much broader, as the review says, ecosystem of supports for people with disability and an easier and fairer kind of way to get them is going to be a great, great outcome. And of course, we have to remember that, that the majority of Australians living with disabilities are not on the NDIS. Exactly. And a lot of the, while the NDIS has been rolled out, we haven't seen a kind of parallel rollout of accessibility in lots of other kind of public services. So it's meant for the 90% of people with disability outside the scheme that things have actually got worse and harder. And that's something that the NDIS review has really tackled. When you're looking at this, the, the review's talking about focusing on the functional capacity of people rather than on their medical diagnosis alone. What do you think about that? 
Yeah, so I was one of the people as part of the co-group, as they called, that did look at uh, issues around access and planning. This has been a look at uh, really focusing on what people with disability need to live their lives. So rather than focusing on specific diagnosis means a specific pile of support, it's a much more individualised approach. When you're talking to people with disabilities who are on the NDIS, what's the most constant worry that comes up when people are talking to you, especially at a time when the government is reviewing and looking at changes? What are they worried about, Elle? Uh, Look, the NDIS provides the kind of life-saving and life-changing public services that so many people with disability rely on. And any conversations about change are stressful and difficult for very, very good reasons. When these kind of supports are about things that are essential to getting out of bed, to having a shower, to going to work and going to school, we have to make sure that people with disability are in the driving seat of these changes. Um, Disability organisations today have called for the uh, Disability Reform Implementation Council to be established so that we have a seat at the table to make sure that we have a say about how this is rolled out. Because too often people with disability, we have things done to us, not with us, and it's time for that to change. What about for the families and the parents of, uh, of people with disabilities as well? Not only worrying about now, but when parents might be gone in the future, what kind of system might be there? Is that rest heavily on a lot of people? It does. And I know that families have put so much time and energy into this review for exactly those reasons. The reviews had three times as many contributions as the original Productivity Commission report into the NDIS 10 years ago. So I think it shows the degree of anxiety and stress that has been caused over the last few years by the way that the NDIS has been implemented. Hopefully some of these recommendations, particularly around home and living, Uh, for people with an intellectual disability will provide the kind of security, innovation, flexibility that people need to set them up for a life that is in the community, not shut away, uh, and that families can be secure. That's Elle Gibbs there, Director of Policy and Advocacy at the Disability Advocacy Network Australia. The government's new preventative detention laws passed federal parliament overnight after a bitter debate. The laws will allow the redetention of high-risk offenders who cannot be deported. But what is the likelihood of legal challenges? Greg Barnes, SC, is spokesperson for the Australian Lawyers Alliance. Well, I think very high because, in effect, what uh, the government and the opposition are doing is replacing one form of indefinite immigration detention with another. And so, uh, you know, it's likely that there'll be a challenge. There's often a challenge in relation to laws that involve preventative detention because, of course, they, uh, whilst they are permitted uh, in Australia and whilst they exist in many jurisdictions in Australia, they do offend, you know, fundamental principles of the rule of law. These decisions will now be handed over to a court. What will the challenges be there in dealing with these issues through this new system? Well, the, the legislation uh, says that uh, in relation to serious violent or sex offences um, uh, and, and if a person can't be deported, I think after three years of detention, a court has to be satisfied to what's called a high degree of probability that there's an unacceptable risk that the person will reoffend. Now, that is a very high bar. Um, having uh, appeared in some of these cases over the years, 
uh, courts are most definitely reluctant to order preventative detention unless the evidence is fairly compelling. And, and that involves the notorious exercise of prediction of reoffending. You know, detention, whether it's for the purposes of sentencing or for the purposes of preventative detention, is the last resort. And so courts would be asked to look at whether or not there are any other ways of controlling uh, or seeking to surveil the behaviour of particular individuals. Given those complications, do you imagine that it will take quite a lot of time to deal with even each individual case? Well, my experience is that these cases are not dealt with uh, particularly quickly because they do require the marshalling of evidence, you know, particularly expert evidence, which is relevant in these cases. And so it's not simply a case of turning up to court and an order can be made. You know, the, the, the standard of a high degree of probability, the fact that there's got to be an unacceptable risk, not just a risk, means that there has to be a very, very careful analysis by a court as to whether or not such an order is warranted and can be made because it passes those tests. Do you think that these new proposed laws will successfully deal with this uh, issue or is it really putting into the hands of the courts to have to decide rather than politicians or ministers or departments? Well, it's highly desirable that the courts, uh, if we're going to have a regime, and of course the ALA, like most legal groups, opposes this regime, uh, but if you're going to have a regime, it's much better in the courts than it is with ministers. As we've seen with immigration detention over many years now, there's been politics played by various ministers when it comes to individuals and some very unfair decisions. And so it's much more desirable that you have the independence of the judiciary uh, having the, the key role in relation to any form of regime. That's Greg Barnes, SC, their spokesperson for the Australian Lawyers Alliance. You're listening to The World Today, right around the country. Well, the arrest of a conspiracy theorist in the US in connection with the murder of two police officers and a good Samaritan in rural Queensland has cast new light on the disturbing culture of religious extremists and the far right. The man was captured in Arizona after posting videos about an extreme version of Christian ideology. Here in Australia, experts say the man's ideas and his alleged influence over the shooters point to bizarre and sometimes dangerous phenomenon. Nicole Johnston reports. It was a brazen attack in a remote part of Queensland. Three members of the train family lured police to their rural property and killed two officers and a neighbour a year ago. In a video recorded by the trains, they mentioned an online US conspiracy theorist who goes by the name of Donald Day. He's now been arrested by the FBI. This man, Mr Day, posted videos about an extreme Christian ideology known as premillennialism. Professor Greg Barton is a terrorism expert from Deakin University. He explains what premillennialism is. It's the dominant view of particularly American Protestant Christians about the way the world ends, and it says that we're living before a dramatic end of the world, an apocalypse, um, an Armageddon sort of final confrontation, after which God will set things right with a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. But at that view of the coming apocalypse, which dominates um, political and social thinking. Greg Barton says pre-millennialism is a mainstream view and most believers don't resort to violence. But he says the trains deviated into a cultish church with a good and evil view of the world. 
it sets you up for a view of the world where everything is getting worse and it's inevitable that there will be a final confrontation. So in the, in the most extreme cases, you're preparing for a fight. Um, it feeds into American thinking about survivalism, you know, living in bunkers. It also feeds into far-right ideas about accelerating the end of history. Queensland police say the US conspiracy theorist sent the train's disturbing content for two years before the ambush. Dr Xanthi Mallet is an associate professor of criminology at the University of Newcastle. She says that people who go down the rabbit hole of online extremism are often removed from reality and hate authority. They don't believe in police authority, they don't believe in the government, they believe in ultimate freedom and some people feel that their freedoms are being curtailed. And whilst that can be a kind of general, quite normal sense sometimes in the community, this is really where we take it to the extremes where they refuse to uphold basic laws and ultimately can become violent towards the authorities. And we've seen that with the trains. They planned, premeditated this attack on police. And it was certainly incited by other individuals, namely the, the person that's been arrested in the US in early December. Dr Mallet says the isolation during the COVID pandemic fueled an increase in conspiracy theories and radical thoughts. Certainly COVID saw a rise in extremist behaviour because people became very disconnected, very fearful, especially of authority um, with everything that was going on. So we have seen a rise in extremist behaviour recently. So I think the message here is, you know, it's about connection, personal connections. If you are fearful for somebody in your family, you think they are developing those extremist views, they may be expressing those views to you, they may be isolating themselves, then you can certainly raise that with the authorities. To the trains, the government was the enemy, the police were illegitimate and the family used religion to justify its battle. Professor Greg Barton again. What we know about the trains is they grew up in a very fundamentalist Christian background and in, in their later life, they went down a very dark path, largely by themselves. So they were losing track of reality. But key friends like the, the man just arrested in America appeared to have reinforced their view that they were going to end up in a battle with the government. That's terrorism expert Professor Greg Barton ending that report from Nicole Johnston. Questions are being asked about why some pregnant women in New South Wales are routinely being offered induced labour earlier than other mothers. Internal hospital documents from two health districts in the Sydney region obtained by the ABC show the timing of inductions is being based on some women's ethnic background. Penny Burfitt reports. Earlier this year, midwife and advocate Sharon Stolia was contacted by mums and midwives concerned about what they regarded as race-based birth guidelines in some Sydney hospitals. As a South Asian mother, she too was worried. I had a few people reaching out to me to tell me that they are being induced quite early or that women that they're looking after being induced early. They sent me their policies and then when I looked through it, I thought, OK, there's a real problem here. Low-risk pregnancies aren't usually induced until 41 weeks, in line with a recommendation from the World Health Organisation. However, internal clinical documents from two local health districts show that a number of ethnicities are considered at higher risk of stillbirth, which could influence decisions about the timing of birth. In the Sydney local health district, South Asian-born mothers are being offered induction at 40 weeks. And in the southwestern Sydney health district, for South Asian, African, Aboriginal 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and Pacific mothers, inductions are being offered at 39 weeks. But Dr Miranda Davies-Tuck, a perinatal epidemiologist at the Hudson Institute in Melbourne and an author of several studies, doesn't think the induction guidelines strike the right balance. At the moment, we don't have evidence to say that we should be offering specific interventions to women in healthcare settings based on their race. The timing of birth should be a shared discussion between the woman and the clinician that matches the particular risk profile of the pregnancy and also the desire of of the woman themselves. In a statement, a spokesperson for New South Wales Health says it's committed to ensuring all women receive safe, respectful, evidence-based and equitable maternity care, including implementing programs to reduce the rates of preventable stillbirth. Dr Miranda Davies-Tuck says her latest clinical trial found increased monitoring instead of induction can reduce stillbirth risk. But induction of labour itself isn't without risk and so finding strategies to make sure that the inductions are just targeted to the women who need it most is desirable. Midwife and advocate Sharon Stolia says inducing women too early can cause harm. It increases complications, increases interventions, it's unnecessary risk for women. Instead I think there's so many other things we could do to reduce that risk. It's just, it's not fair to this group of women. It is racial profiling at its worst. The Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists won't comment on the guidelines, but says it supports individualised care based on a woman's risk and choices and the latest evidence-based information. That's Penny Burfitt reporting there. Finally today, Central Australia is facing its worst fire season in more than a decade. And the highly flammable invasive species, buffle grass, is fueling it. A push to classify the grass as a weed so it's tracked and managed is gaining support, with an Alice Springs doctor raising the alarm about the health impacts of bushfires. But there's concern from within the pastoral industry that if the grass is reclassified, cattle station owners will be faced with the mammoth job of managing it. Oliver Gordon reports. The distinct pop and crackle of a desert bushfire. An all too familiar sound in central Australia this year. In September and October, a mammoth fire burnt through areas totalling twice the size of Tasmania. Alice Springs Hospitals, Dr Dan Wilson, saw the impact. We did see presentations in Alice Springs Hospital related to poor air quality. We did see patients presenting to hospital in different ways and we did see patients proactively taking strategies to reduce the impact on their health and well-being from wildfire smoke and poor air quality. The fires have sparked a highly charged debate in central Australia about the invasive and highly flammable species buffalo grass. Introduced to the NT in the 60s as a pasture for the region's cattle industry, buffalo is still highly valued by some pastoralists as fodder, but some environmental and health groups say it makes wildfires more intense. Chief Executive of the Aboriginal Medical Services Alliance Northern Territory, John Patterson, is urging the NT government to follow the South Australian government's lead and declare the grass as a weed. He says it's a matter of health. Particularly when you know there's big uh, fuel loads there and we get these fires that we've seen recently that have just gone out of control and burnt you know, weeks on weeks, month on month, potentially having, you know, um, impacting on our remote Aboriginal communities, uh, population, particularly those that are suffering with various respiratory um, conditions. So you think buffalo grass has a greater impact on 
First Nations people living out bush in remote communities than the general population. Uh, absolutely, yeah, that, that's what our public health uh, team and advisors are saying. Not everyone's convinced making buffalo grass a weed is the answer, though. NT Cattlemen's Association Chief Executive Will Evans has questioned the role it played in the recent fires. The reality is the Northern Territory is a unique landscape, and it's a landscape, certainly in the arid region, that builds up dry matter over, over years of a good wet season and then years of bad wet seasons, and it, it accumulates over time, and then it burns. And that's what happens in that landscape. It's, it's what happened forever in that landscape, and regardless of whether the buffalo is there or not, it is going to keep happening in that landscape into the future. Even with a Category A declaration, what, what, are we meant, what, what, what practical steps can we actually take? It's a question Arid Lands Environment Centre CEO Adrian Tomlinson ponders often. He reckons if Buffalo's declared a weed, the first step will be containing it. This is in a way like managing an outbreak of any, um, any disease really where first step is to stop the spread. The environmentalist has even raised the prospect of the species creeping into large swathes of the continent. That's a really big problem. It's existential to these lands. And so looking for, to see that well-resourced, to deal with the threat. And then also, this is a national issue. Buffalo could impact 70% of Australia. So it really needs a, a, na- a nationwide response as well. A working group set up by the NT government to assess how best to manage the species has filed its report. The minister responsible is expected to decide on whether buffalo will become a weed in the coming months. Oliver Gordon, and that's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sara. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. The world's attention may have shifted to the war in the Middle East, but in Ukraine, the battle drags on as a second winter sets in with no end in sight. Today, Dr Samir Puri, a visiting lecturer at King's College London, on who's winning the war and how long Ukraine can rely on Western support. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.